This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Evan Wasuka. Coming up, a new deadly weapon is causing havoc and hours of surgery in Papua New Guinea. It's a very vicious weapon, unlike a bullet which is sort of smooth and you can just pull it out with a tweezer. This thing is, it's meant to kill. It's meant to do serious harm. Cruise ships make a return to the Pacific, but there's concerns over COVID safety. There's a real risk in terms of widespread COVID transmission on board a cruise ship, uh, both for the individuals that are on the cruise ship, but then also if those people were disembarking. And the Vanuatu Orchestra is helping disadvantaged youth experience a new culture. I was a bit scared, but then when we came here, I felt like we were in the same level, level, so I was more... I had more confidence in myself. More on those stories coming up. But first, as the UN climate talks wind up for another year, plenty of questions remain on whether developed nations will commit to further reducing carbon emissions. But what happens when a country sinks beneath rising sea levels? Tuvalu's answer is to go online and into the metaverse. As Jordan Fennell reports, the Pacific nation says it will be forced to become the world's first digital nation. Standing at a podium on the sandy beach of an islet, Tuvalu's foreign minister, Simon Coffey, pleads for help. We've seen temperature rise projections remain well above 1.5 degrees Celsius, foretelling the imminent disappearance of islets like this one. As the camera zooms out, a palm tree in the background flickers, a pile of rocks blips onto the screen. Our land, our ocean, our culture are the most precious assets of our people. And to keep them safe from harm, no matter what happens in the physical world, will move them to the cloud. It zooms out further and the ocean glitches. You realise he's standing on a digital replica of the islet, which is threatened by rising sea levels. Tuvalu believes an online version of itself in the metaverse is what awaits it if the country succumbs to the impacts of climate change. Nothing like this has really ever been done before. And I think this is largely because the metaverse, it doesn't really exist yet. There are sort of bits and pieces that, you know, in its kind of fully-fledged form, it doesn't really exist. Kate Clark is a PhD candidate and virtual reality researcher at Monash University. Initial concept actually came from a sci-fi book that was published in 1992 by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash, and that kind of had a lot of a lot more dystopian roots. The book describes people using digital avatars of themselves to explore the online world as a way of escaping a hellish reality. Here's the author, Neil Stevenson, on how he imagined it in an interview with Bloomberg. What I envisioned then was what we would now call a massively multiplayer online 3D world, just meaning that a large number of people can be in it and interact with each other in real time. Kate Clark says now, 30 years after Snow Crash was published, the idea and technology behind the metaverse is still speculative. So there really isn't one definition yet. Uh, the most high-profile definition is from Facebook or now Meta. Hey, and welcome to Connect. Today, we're going to talk about the metaverse, starting with the most important experience of all, connecting with people. So basically what they want to do is build an umbrella space where individuals and businesses can create their own rooms within it. Imagine 
you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually, it has things that are only possible virtually, and it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. She says even though it's the most well-known example of a metaverse, Facebook's concept isn't the only way to do it. When Zuckerberg first started talking about the metaverse, there was a lot of discussion that these spaces already exist in video games like Second Life is a really uh, old one that's been around since about 2011. But one of the key things you know, about how we use the term metaverse today is really about that virtual reality environment. And when you say virtual reality environment, I think a lot of people would initially think, okay, that means I'm putting on like a VR headset, um, you know, I'm holding paddles and stuff and I'm putting, like my movements will be mirrored in a VR setting online. Is that what you mean or is there a better explanation of what people are thinking when you say it's a VR space? At the moment, that's basically what what technology is required to enter the metaverse. As the technology progresses, it will become more intuitive, less kind of cumbersome and like a less big headset. And at this stage, if a whole country goes into the metaverse, I imagine all of its citizens then have to buy VR equipment, virtual reality equipment. How much does all of that cost? Yeah, so it depends on... A few things. My setup costs roughly twenty three hundred Australian dollars. But let me just quickly look up the Oculus Quest. I think you can get that for around six hundred Australian. And I think that's probably one of the cheaper models out there now. While Tuvalu might be the first country planning to become a digital nation, other places are dipping their toes into the metaverse space. Both the city of Seoul in South Korea and the nation of Barbados last year said they planned to enter the metaverse to provide administrative and consular services. But Kate Clark questions whether it's the right move. The, the intention to sort of replicate Tuvalu in the metaverse in order to preserve culture brings up some questions about how we experience culture. Such an abstract an emotionally felt thing that it often involves things like communities and getting together for food and all that sort of stuff rather than just the physical space itself. And at the end of the day, basically culture is about people. And current VR technology is really expensive and residents will likely struggle to afford VR hardware on the nation's average household income, which begs the question, how will a culture continue without its people? And who is this preservation of culture actually for? In his video to the COP27 leaders, Tuvalu's foreign minister says he hopes that it doesn't actually get to the point where they have to leave the physical behind and move into a digital reality, but that they have to plan for it anyway, as a lack of action on climate change leaves them no other choice. Without a global conscience and a global commitment to our shared well-being, we may soon find the rest of the world joining us online as their lands disappear. It has long been the time for action, but we have not stepped up to the challenge. We must start doing so today. Otherwise, within a lifetime, Tuvalu will only exist here. Tuvalu's foreign minister, Simon Coffey, speaking there. A vicious new homemade weapon is spreading in Papua New Guinea and causing gruesome injuries and sometimes death. Known as wire catapults, the weapons are putting a massive strain on health services in some areas, with victims requiring hours of surgery to treat. Marion Farr with this story. Lisa Martin was walking to the markets early on a Saturday morning in Wewak, the capital of East Sepik province. 
she was approached by a young, intoxicated man who demanded money. And I said, I have no money and they get away at the pill and shot me. The young woman was shot in the back with a homemade weapon known in Papua New Guinea as a wire catapult. The long metal rod with a vicious barbed tip lodged into her body, almost piercing through her ribcage. Ms Martin was rushed to hospital where doctors were able to remove the metal spear and save her life. I feel a lot of pain in my shoulder. But not everyone is so lucky. So far, eight people have died from wire catapult attacks in East Sepik this year and almost 300 others have been seriously injured. ECPIC Governor Alan Bird says it's a worrying situation. The level of knowledge to make illegal firearms is quite prolific and widespread throughout our young people. Making things worse is the complexity of removing these wire catapults. It's a very vicious weapon, unlike a bullet which is sort of smooth and you can just pull it out with a tweezer. This thing is, it's meant to kill. It's meant to do serious harm. And the proliferation of violent attacks is putting the region's medical system under immense strain. Dr Raphael Mullian is an anaesthetist and acting deputy director of the ECPIC Provincial Health Authority. He says treating victims of wire catapult attacks can take up to six hours of surgery and a 10-person medical team. Sometimes we use about six to eight bags of blood and that is not enough even for some of these patients. It's also expensive and takes resources away from other patients. We have normal patients that are coming in for you know, other operations or for other services because of a lot of resources and time is being spent on these cases. Dr Malian says the region's under-resourced health system is buckling. It's just that we can cope. We tend to lose some of the patients that are ended up in the hospital. We are not prepared to gather for them. The issue is also frustrating community leaders in East Sepik. Last week, a number of locals took to the streets, urging people to surrender wire catapults to authorities. Local business owner Louis Canduo created a Facebook group to raise awareness about the problem, fearing it will only get worse if nothing's done. And even the public, they will not feel safe to roam around in the public. He says the violence is underpinned by high youth unemployment rates. So we must find some solution to keep them busy. That's something ECP Governor Alan Bird says he's working to address, along with introducing tougher penalties for making and possessing wire catapults. The ECP Provincial Executive Council has taken a decision two weeks ago to engage lawyers to take a look at the criminal code particularly in relation to the use of weapons, and to provide us an advice as to what we need to do to strengthen these laws. For victims like Lisa Martin, that change can't come soon enough. Marion Farr reporting there. Luxury cruise liners are making a return to the Pacific almost three years after the pandemic put a stop to it. It's a boon to tourism and the economy, But with a recent COVID-19 outbreak on a cruise ship in Sydney, there are concerns about the spread of coronavirus to vulnerable communities. Dubravka Volodir with more. In Vanuatu, the first cruise ship arrived in Port Vila only a week ago, receiving a warm welcome by locals. 
After almost three years, the excitement of their return was real. Paul Pio from Vanuatu Tourism says it marks a new chapter to tourism in the country. The Vanuatu government has decided to uh, do a trial month um, just to test on protocols and community awareness. So for the month of November alone, uh, we have about four cruise vessels that will come back to Vanuatu. Passenger numbers will be capped at 2,500 per ship this month and will then be slowly increased. He says it will benefit the country's tourism industry greatly, which took a hit during the pandemic. Fiji started welcoming cruise tourists back in September. Tourism CEO Fiji, Brent Hill, says since then they hosted about two ships per week. We're not back to the pre-pandemic levels uh, just yet. Yeah, that'll probably take a little while yet just to, to come through. But you're talking about anywhere from, you know, 1,900 up to, you know, 2,900 up to 4,000 people on board. Cruise ships have also been arriving in more remote areas of Papua New Guinea. But there are concerns that cruise ships could expose some areas of the region to more COVID-19. Last weekend, the Majestic Princess liner docked in Sydney with 800 positive COVID cases on board. Coming from New Zealand, some of them disembarked in the harbour city. Spokesperson Margaret Fitzgerald says ship staff were cooperating with health authorities. Reflective of the increase in community transmission, we too have seen more guests test positive for COVID-19 on the current voyage of Majestic Princess. This is a result of mass testing of our 3,300 guests. Cruise operator Princess Cruises says the company requires 95% of guests over the age of 12 to be vaccinated. Many have drawn comparisons with Australia's Ruby Princess COVID outbreak of 2020, where at least 900 people tested positive and 28 died. An epidemiologist in Papua New Guinea, Dr. Stephanie Wacker, says cruise ships can be a breeding ground for infectious diseases. There's a real risk in terms of widespread COVID transmission on board a cruise ship, uh, both for the individuals that are on the cruise ship, but then also if those people were disembarking, um, then that poses a real risk to the people in the places that they might be visiting, especially in some of the more remote areas. She says people in remote areas might not have had much exposure to COVID-19 and they often can't easily see a doctor if they get sick. There are also new strains that pose a risk. You're just increasing the risk of transmission, say, to taxi drivers, to port workers, to maybe shop owners or cafe owners you might come in contact with, people selling their wares or anyone, you know, giving tours once you're on land. So it's just potentially leading to more COVID spread. Brent Hill says there is some concern in Fiji that guests could bring more COVID ashore. That's something that everybody is is worried about. It's a natural concern, but I think the good thing now is that, you know, the cruise ships are very much prepared for this. They work really strongly with um, the authorities. They've got very detailed plans. And so it's quite a different space to where we were, you know, a couple of years back. And Vanuatu's Paul Pio says measures are in place in case of outbreaks. We want to provide the reassurance to our visitors that Vanuatu is, is prepared. Paul Pio ending that report from Dubravka Volader. A campaign opposing one of Papua New Guinea's largest gold mining projects has stepped up a level with the filing of an official legal complaint. 
a coalition of community and church groups, are claiming that the Wafi Golpu joint venture impinges on human rights. Nick Fogarty with this report. The 54-page complaint against Newcrest Mining and Harmony Gold Australia has been filed with the Australian National Contact Point for Responsible Business Conduct, which aims to promote the OECD guidelines for multinational enterprises. It lists 10 failures by the joint venture companies, including the failure to avoid contributing to adverse human rights impacts and failure to respect the right to free, prior and informed consent. Peter Bossip is the Executive Director of Cellcor, the PNG-based community legal centre that's lodged the complaint. Communities, they have the right. It's the customary right. They need to uh, give consent. The companies or the developers and the state cannot force people to forgo their, their livelihoods. The Wafi Golpu project, based 65 kilometres southwest of Leh in Moribay province, is worth an estimated 5.4 billion US dollars. Controversy around the project is centred on two main aspects. Firstly, the decision to use deep sea tailings placement, or DSTP, which will involve the discharge of the mine's waste directly into the ocean at Huon Gulf. And secondly, the decision to run the pipe carrying that waste directly through Ley, on a route that passes two hospitals and an active earthquake fault line. The project's environmental impact statement says it passes the test, but an independent expert commissioned by PNG's Environmental Authority has raised questions. The review by Professor Ralph Marner hasn't been made public. Emily Mitchell is the Research Director at Jubilee Australia, one of the organisations involved in the community campaign. There are so many areas that this project is just going to be an ecological disaster, is the words that he's used. Given the nature of his criticism um, today, it doesn't appear that those concerns have been addressed. In a statement to Pacific Beat, Newcrest says the joint venture has consulted extensively and directly with local communities and stakeholders since 2016, including coastal communities along the Huon Gulf, to explain DSTP, present comprehensive study outcomes in a transparent and accessible way, and understand and address communities' feedback, aspirations and concerns. It says that local community feedback has been supportive. Last week, Newcrest held its AGM, where shareholder and Huon Gulf villager Yotham Israel Kaleno asked the board if Newcrest would halt all approvals and development until a negotiation and consent process is reached. This was Chairman Peter Tomsett's response. I think it's fair to say that we've done a lot of engineering over the, over the years, um, done a lot of community consultation. We've done... Um, evaluation of numerous land-based options and have come up with DS, deep sea tailings disposal as the preferred option. But Cellcor's Peter Bosip says there's a double standard in the environmental care being shown. In Australia, if we look at the mine waste management practice, not even a single minute or second, the tailings will be discharged into the waters or ocean in Australia. There is a very strict guideline as to how the waste, mine waste or tailings should be managed. If that is the principle that is applied in Australia, why can't the Australian company do the same to the uh, PNG? PNG is not a dumping ground. PNG is not a dumping ground. An Australian company, if they want to you know, conduct mining uh, operations in, in PNG, they must follow the same law 
of waste management that is uh, practiced in Australia, they must do the same to PNG. Yotham Israel Kalino, who's been heavily involved in the community campaign, says the PNG government also has a lot of work to do to help the communities through the process. In the context of Papua New Guinea, almost uh, 80 to 90 percent of uh, the land and the water territories are customarily owned. So if someone is a, a governor or a member of a parliament or a prime minister, they are not necessarily the owner of the resource. So yes, we have the government there, but they... They can only do as much as what they can do, but uh, it would be our standpoint is for the government to improve their regulatory frameworks. In terms of the legal complaint process, Emily Mitchell says she's got faith in the outcome if the complaint's accepted by the Australian National Contact Point. And if it is accepted, then what's really wonderful about the National Contact Point process is that it facilitates a mediation between the companies and the complainants. The Organisations that have submitted the complaint have a list of remedies that we are seeking uh, as part of that complaint. The most significant one is that the companies undertake to abandon their current plans to pursue deep sea tailings placement at Wagang Village and to develop a new tailings management plan that doesn't involve a pipeline through the city of Ley and an outfall at Wagang Village. It's an outcome they hope will be comparable to one achieved last year through the AusNCP where Bougainville communities forced Rio Tinto to commit to funding an independent environmental and human rights impact assessment of its former Pangana mine. Nick Fogarty reporting, and the ABC has sought comment from the PNG government. Classical instruments might not be easy to find on many Pacific islands, but Vanuatu's first youth orchestra have managed to strum, blow and clang their way to the Queensland Symphony. It's all thanks to an Australian teacher, who made it her mission to get disadvantaged Vanuatu students playing classical music. Hugo Hodge with this report. The members of Vanuatu's first youth orchestra aren't the children who usually learn classical instruments. The orchestra's conductor, Australian Barbara Edie Dare, sometimes notices her students return to rehearsals with wax drippings on their instruments. And then I know, OK, that kid's got a candle at home. Like they, they don't have electricity. The Nabunga Ensemble for Disadvantaged Youths has just completed the trip of a lifetime touring in Queensland. The students, like cello player Kaina Del Rio, were blown away when they landed in Brisbane. I was like surprised when I came here. Um, I've discovered new things that I, never, I have never seen. Their action-packed schedule included a trip to perform with the students of Toowoomba Grammar School and viola player Anamalia Cheka Ifanu was a little nervous. I was a bit scared but then when we came here I felt like we were in the same level, level so I was more, I had more confidence in myself. Next was a special performance for Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers where the Nabunga Ensemble played traditional songs. Oh, to make that connection overseas is super important. I really want for Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers here and other Pacific Islander workers here in Australia to see us representing Vanuatu, representing the Pacific and flying the flag a little bit, you know? The seasonal workers wore traditional dress for the occasion and they sang along when the ensemble played the Vanuatu national anthem. Seasonal worker Samantha Kalanga said she was proud of the kids. I love the concert. The songs are really beautiful. And it's my first time seeing the Nifan kids playing the violin and the double bass. 
That's no surprise, considering the Nabunga Ensemble have the only double bass in all of Vanuatu. Later that afternoon was the highlight of the trip, a workshop with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra, one of Australia's leading orchestras. I'm really excited like, to learn from those professionals and like show them how much I was practicing. I'm going to play for the musicians and get some lessons, which is nuts. It's just crazy. In the evening, the students were in the audience at a Queensland Symphony Orchestra concert when they were asked to stand and they received a round of applause from the crowd. Hugo Hodge reporting there. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Review for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Evan Wasuka, and do join us again at the same time next week for more news and views from around the Pacific. Pacific.